Okay, welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about other cultures. Someone just brought it up to me on social media that I don't introduce myself on the podcast. I'm like, dude, if you DM me on social media, like, you know who I am. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe this whole spiel of how I, you know, introduce the podcast. I always say my name is Nosa Yara and welcome to another episode. So there it is. My name is Nosa, even though you can see it on, on the podcast uh, uh, description and all that. But today we have uh, a scientist uh, on, on the podcast. We have Alec um, phoning in, not phoning in, but being on Zoom all the way from Houston, Texas. What's going on, Alec? Not too much. Just got out of lab, trying to get back into my normal clothes, take my lab coat off, and uh, super happy to be here. Is that, is that like a daily thing for you? Like people go to the club, you go to the lab, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's we're both super cool, right? My tall white lab coat, definitely just as cool as the club people. Right, right, right. Alex Santiago um, is a PhD, PhD student or PhD candidate? I know there's a candidate. difference. Right? Yeah, so there's well, a big test in the middle, and luckily I got through that okay. Nice, nice. Okay, so you're, you're, you're a student first, then you do the test, and then you become a candidate, right? Mm-hmm. There we go, there we go. I, know I always mix that up, but um, like doing a PhD, like I was just talking to you about how I almost enrolled into, I did apply, but I didn't, I didn't end up going to the University of Delaware uh, for a financial service analytics PhD, and I was just like, man, after going through an undergraduate degree in accounting, working in the banking sector, having an MBA, like going for a six-year PhD, like I respect anyone like that you know even attempts a phd and even respect people more we eventually completed but and we'll, we'll get into why you decide to opt for the phd program but how's life for you in general as a phd student do you find yourself like always questioning things if you're at a bar and you see uh, a drink or something like, i wonder what's in there or something like <laughs> how's it like for you you know it, it wasn't like that until recently but since my background is in microbiology and i'm in a microbiology uh, department this year has been like right up my alley so with all the virus stuff going around like this has been the only time where people actually cared about the things i've learned about so it's been super exciting time for me isn't that like okay so you're not an epidemiologist right but how much connection does uh, microbiology have to viruses i guess some connection that that would make sense but i know like um some studies with um what's the name of this lady who won the nobel prize um the crispr technology yeah yeah she was trying to do some things with with genetics and they were trying to see if they could you know use genetics and some altering stuff to prevent coronavirus like i'm just trying to understand how microbiology and you know the virus like connect because i can understand like epidemiology or public health or you know other stuff but microbiology how how, how do you how do, what kind of questions were you being asked how do you answer those questions like last year and even this year sure so it starts off as just a general overhead where everything on a cellular level so single cells whether they're human cells or single cell bacteria and then as you get through past your undergrad you kind of uh, specify what you want to get into so a lot of people tend to go towards epidemiology and study how things spread through populations, or you can be an infectious disease specialist and specifically look at things that infect people. Um, I chose to do molecular genetics. So I look at everything on a very, very microscopic level, such as basic proteins and lipids, DNA, and how they all function together within a cell. And so the, the mechanics 
of cellular stuff is really my alley. Okay, nice, nice. How much do you think uh, we understand about the human body? Like if you were to assign a percentage, or let's just say the cells within the human body, do you think like all parts, uh, or are they still discovering new things or how cells behave or react in certain environments every day? Like, would you say we understand 50%, 60%? You know, I keep thinking we understand a lot, but then somebody opens a door and it turns out there's a billion things behind there. So I thought we knew a billion things and there was only maybe a billion left. But now people keep discovering brand new facets of biology and it turns out there's like unlimited amounts left. So, so it's just a, a hole that keeps getting bigger. Yeah, tell me about it. Tell me about it. Anyway, let's uh, peel back uh, the layers a little bit and talk about you growing up. Like, I, I can imagine you weren't born and, you know, got enrolled into a PhD program the next day, right? Like, you had a background kind of like growing up. Talk to me about that. Like, how was growing up like for you? Like, how many siblings did you have? What were your parents like? Were there immigrants? Like, you know, what city did you grow up in? And all that good stuff. Sure. So I was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, mostly in a neighborhood that's actually colloquially referred to as the war zone. So if you Google Albuquerque war zone, my neighborhood will pop up. Um, I was in a, a single mother, no father, um, kind of like the prototypical poverty family, you know, just constant moving, um, just a real bad environment, lots of drugs and some, some bad times. But um, eventually there were some major factors that changed and uh, I actually went to live with some other family in high school. And that's when the big shift came when I was allowed to kind of settle down more in the routine and it gave me the uh, the core foundation that I needed to really start moving in the right direction. But when I was like prior to 15, chaos, it was nuts. Would you say before you made that move uh, to high school, were you able to concentrate on things like school or what was your environment just such a distraction that you couldn't even think about school or, or what was going on? You know, I, I really am a big believer in the concepts of Maslow's hierarchy. And when you are, you know, living in the back of a car or in a hotel room, you don't have water, you don't have electricity, the last thing you care about is homework. There are, there are way, way more important things to get to before that. And so it's just a, it, it, you can only have so much space for attention. And if the majority of that is just going into getting through the day, then there's no time or energy to really further yourself. So there really just wasn't much attention being paid towards my education. So did you have siblings at all? Or you were, I mean, you said yeah, you grew up with a single mother, but were, were you the only uh, child? I have a little sister actually so we're four years apart now so uh so we i kind of grew up as more or less her parental figure so um it was mostly the two of us during the day so you know we would get each other ready for school and cook food together and we spent a lot of our time together growing up kind of on our own got it so and what was the situation with your mom was she out a lot was she working multiple jobs or what was that like at the time, and granted, my mother is a completely changed person now. You know, recovery does wonderful things to to somebody. But uh, at the time, you know, being caught up in, a di in an addiction was very much a black hole for her. So uh, she was kind of nocturnal, <laughs> you know, up all night. I uh, didn't see her too much during the day. Um, so it, it was a weird kind of, I forget the term for it, but there's a term for it when, like, children are out running the streets by themselves. That's basically what we were. Latchkey kids, I think. Uh, and you were, like, what, eight or nine at this point? Oh, it was from when I was about, shoot, like three or four up until I was maybe 13, 14. 
Wow, and, and would you say that kind of like sub subconsciously implanted in your head or made you gravitate towards the sciences later in life? Would you say that had any impact on that decision? No, getting into the sciences was was actually more of a peer situation. So when I started to connect more with my peers is when I found that interest, but that didn't really click for me until college. Actually, I wanted to start off in business too, and I thought that was for me, but some, some really good friends of mine showed me some sciences, and that's when, for the first time, I felt like a click of interest that was something more inherent right I, I probably need to change my, my friend circle <laughs> I'm just kidding but uh, you know I'm, I'm a big believer in the environment right like I, I always say it on the podcast that my dad was in the military in Nigeria and I and I got to travel to all these places and as I as a kid I hated it you know going to boarding school in one house and I'll come back and I'm coming back to a different house because my dad moved around so much and I, I can remember the time where a friend came to my house and my room was just like it was just like a bed and then boxes i was like getting my clothes out of the boxes and, and i was like dude like hang shit up like organize the place i'm like i don't know when i'm gonna be moving next like <laughs> i'll just you know have to like stay with the flow here but that kind of like helped me in the long run because i got to experience like all these diverse cultures and all these different things like when you say you moved to a different area for high school um was that a pivotal point in the sense that you got into a more conducive environment that could make you then focus on education what would you say changed with that particular move and where did you move to exactly so i actually ended up moving in with my uncle but it's interesting that you say uh, when you talk about the empty room and stuff because that's something that i've really been experiencing now so i just moved into a new place and you don't feel really like you have a home base until you started to personalize it a little bit until it's more than a box that you sleep in and that flux that you're always in doesn't ever let you feel centered and grounded to something and so when I moved in with my uncle, it was the first time that I really started to feel that centered positioning. Like, like there was a retreat in a sense. You know, there was a place where I could unwind and not have to feel that that low-key tension that always exists in the background, that waiting for action. And so when that happened and that stability started to set in, like there were fundamental changes to me, like just in my demeanor, you know, it was more relaxed and uh, I could concentrate on different things. Right, right. And, and this was an argument that um, I guess some of the school boards across America was making, right? Like, hey, that school is somewhat of a safe haven for some of the students because, you know, going back home is not like the best of experiences. That's why with the pandemic, like with remote learning and everything, like it was just like, I think back home in Nigeria, like there's a record, uh, a record decline, like the general exam in high school or something just because of that gap year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay, so you were this kid, you moved into to, to your uncle's place, you know, you got into high school. How did you approach university? you told me you started out in business like what made that decision like because from what I understand you got a scholarship to a lot of schools like 30 something schools like that that goes to show that you were probably like a topper uh, you know when you were in high school but like what made you choose business yeah, so I, uh, again, high school is when I found a really, really solid peer group. So they were the people that would help me with my homework and keep me motivated. And, you know, you you kind of copy what you see around you. And they were all succeeding and they were on good terms with the teachers and stuff. So I wanted to emulate that. And uh, it so turns out that I just happened to do really well on one test on the PSAT. And that was enough to give me uh, the National Merit Scholar. And so I got a list of colleges and I knew nothing. I knew nothing about the process. I didn't know how to look at schools and decide if it was for me. I didn't know anything about majors. I thought there was like four of them and you pick one. 
Right. And so I, I, I didn't have anything to go on. So I was given this list and I'm like, I don't know. So the only thing that I knew was that Auburn University had just won the national championship. So that would probably be a pretty good Auburn, place to that's party. that's an A. Like, was that at the top of the list? <laughs> yeah, it was right up there. And like, they had just won the national championship in football. And so I thought, okay, I want to go party there. It's going to be sweet. And that's wait, it. wait, wait, you were thinking about parties? I would think like, oh, you, you weren't thinking about parties at all. Like, what if you were that intelligent in high school but obviously like you you live don't you live a more balanced life than some of us do like my 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 mind is either like one or the other but what were some of the other schools that you had the option of going to um i can't man i cannot even remember i i looked at the list and didn't recognize any of them but there weren't many top tier schools there weren't any ivy league schools or anything but um yeah my senior year was a lot crazier in the sense that there was a lot a lot of partying and so i was really interested in that at the time and uh it was kind of my only metric so when i picked auburn i didn't look into the website i didn't go visit or anything i just thought it would be a nice place to go have some fun and that's it that's all it took right right i mean the college admission process is so different in the u.s like i went to undergrad in nigeria i did my graduate degree here like when i was in graduate school here and i'll see potential undergrads like coming to campus to visit like exploring different things yeah parents really being involved in the process is just so different uh like where i come from but you eventually started studying business how did the first few semesters go when did you eventually switch into science and you said some friends led you down that path like what was it they said what was it they did what was it you observed that eventually like tipped tipped you over the edge to like switch courses and at one what point was that was that your sophomore year you know i think that the poverty mindset kind of sets you in a certain direction and a lot of that is where you really prioritize money over everything so the only thing that i really knew was that business makes money business centers around money and so that's i was like yeah sign me up so I went through that. I found out that I was not very well uh, equipped as far as math skills go. I had to take Cal 2 three times. Um, I, I, I went through and I kind of uh, floundered a little bit because when you don't have a model to follow, really, and you're not even sure that the resources exist, I showed up to college and had never really done a whole lot of studying and had never really like buckled myself down and had academic goals. And um, I was in the honors college for a while. and ended up relinquishing that because I just couldn't keep up with my peers. And it took me a long time to kind of figure out how the college system works because nobody around me within my family knew what to do. And I was way too embarrassed to ask my friends. So I kind of stumbled through the business stuff for a while. And then I met a guy who uh, who was in the physics lab that I had to take with me. And he started telling me about the microbiology stuff. And for the first time, it was actually interesting. Like, I wanted to do it just for the sake of it. What were you and doing so in the physics lab as a business uh, major? It was like one of those required courses. Um, it was a physics two lab that we had to take because for our core classes, we had to go up through physics two. But I started to learn a little bit there. Maybe it was physics one. Um, but yeah, I started to learn a little bit. And then he invited me to take some other classes. So my senior or my junior year, after I finished off all my core stuff, I was actually able to like decide on a major at a time when it would matter. And so he convinced me to take some uh, some science courses and I just kind of went from it from there. Nice, nice. You, you know, it's so funny, like the experiences that different people go through, like like your experience, like you didn't necessarily have any direction. You were just trying to like figure things out as you went ahead. Like I just remember myself talking to my sister like earlier this week. She wants to like get like a, a degree in like filmmaking or something. And I was like trying to say, do you need a degree in filmmaking? Like all the best 
filmmakers and documentary like those guys don't necessarily like have a specific degree in filmmaking but I, I'm, I'm thinking she just wants some of that college experience or, or grad school experience in a sense but but it's just different it's kind of like damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing but but eventually you switch uh to and did you observe like your grades started getting better did you start to enjoy like the subjects you were or the courses you were starting to take like what were what there any like noticeable differences yeah and the same kind of thing happened where i found a really nice peer group the guy who showed me science uh, ended up introducing me to his friends and we would study together and at the time i was actually working in the library um overnight shifts so we would come and they would bring their stuff to my job and we would get to like study and hang out and it was actually it was a social dynamic in my academic life uh for the second time that really had a really big positive influence on me so I actually ended up losing my scholarship um, my junior oh. year. Oh, my. Uh, so I ended up with a 2.997, and I needed a 3.0 to keep it. So I lost it, and I probably could have petitioned for it, but I was kind of homesick, so I went home for a year. And actually, one of the guys reached out to me, and he's like, look, you should go back, you should finish, and you should do the PhD program that I'm at. And at the, at the time, you know, I had never even considered a PhD. I really didn't know what it entailed, but uh, I took his advice, and now I'm here. And uh, just going back to what your sister um, was thinking, you know, I think that we were talking beforehand about the big differences between like masters and PhDs. Um, you know, I really love when people get PhDs in some of the uh, the things that you don't necessarily think about PhDs for, because those are the people that like push the envelope. So like with with science, um, I could have you know gone straight from to a master's degree, and then you get it, you get a nice job, but you're like you're more performing a job, you know. Whereas when you get your PhD, they expect this different thing from you, where you uh, you're supposed to be more analytical and push the envelope a little bit. You know, so there's like a weird thing between like, do you want to jump in and learn from the industry and do it the way things are done and then eventually blossom? Or do you want to go learn how to blossom first and then start to create your own path into the industry from the get go once you get there eventually? Right, 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 right. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a life is like a continuous decision making pr process, like choices, choices, choices every single day. <laughs> but, but it is what it is. <laughs> but so far, so good. Like, is there any advice like i want to make sure that i don't forget to ask for some practical tips for some of those times where you are indecisive about what path to take in your career or things like that for someone who might be listening to this podcast i might be going through the same thing so i might be on a camp or somewhere listening to this thinking that am i in the right degree um should i go for a PhD program so i switch schools try switch majors like what were some of those things you used to determine like there were friends there to motivate you but you you obviously asked some internal questions what are some of those signs you, you saw before you made those decisions one of the really big core concepts, I would say, is to, to get over your fear of being embarrassed and to ask for help and advice from everybody around you. Because so many people have taken so many different paths. There's always going to be a way to get anywhere you want to be. Sometimes you have to create that path yourself. But until you start talking to people and learning how they did it, you're not going to be able to just know what's out there. And that it, that includes like asking for academic resources as well. You know, don't be scared to feel dumb or to feel like you should know these things already. You know, the administration is there to help you and they will point you in the right direction to help you succeed. So just relinquish any sort of 
of ego you have in wanting to look well-prepared or cool or competent and just go out and get as much information as you can because the best decision is a well-informed decision. Facts, fuck. I totally agree with that. Like even currently, I'm trying to start something in the trucking industry, right? And my background is not in start. I haven't been a product manager or anything a day in my life. And like when I approach some of these people, like I get so washed about some basic things, you know, they use all these keywords that people in the industry should know. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, dude. All I know is that I've identified a need and I think I can provide a solution to this. But everyone just gets so technical. Like when you're talking with engineers and things, like they like get get technical. But yeah. Yeah, that, I that you hit a you were talking to one guy on LinkedIn. This is a little lurky, but they showed it to me. And you were asking him directly, like, how did you get sponsors and stuff? Did he get back to you? He we not about that. He did get back to me uh via the DM, but not about that specific questions. We just like connected and I talked about other stuff. But that's like who I am exactly. That's personification of who I am. Like I'm not afraid to like go out there and like try to look stupid and just ask that, what do I do? Like a lot of people, especially like immigrants that I know from my country, Nigeria, a lot of people who come here are like, oh, let me be a nurse or or let me be a doctor or, or let me be being real estate or do this and do that. And let me just stay in my lane, you know, be quiet, send money back home. You know, this isn't my country kind of thing. I'm like, fuck that. Like, if if I I can make a difference, why am I just living to survive? Like, you know, what the hell? Like, I I can put myself out there. It might not always work, but at least I try. Like, I'll I'll regret it more if I knew something that could have been and I didn't make any attempt, you know. Um, Yeah. That's what it takes. There's a big difference between the doers and the don't doers. And sometimes you just have to go out there and take one step and let the rest of the steps follow. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so what's the most exciting part about doing research into molecular genetics? Like, is there a specific thing? Like, I remember one time... I read one study, a psychological study uh, about can money buy love. I was like, that's like one of the only research papers I've ever met. Because that was just a fascinating study to me, like the way they crafted it and the way they explained scientifically if money can actually buy love. But have you tried to answer something like that? Or it might not even be something, you know, as exciting as that, but something exciting to you in particular. Uh, has there been a question that you've been eking to to answer or a particular part of your, your course or research that has been exciting so far? Yeah, I'd say there's two different aspects. One is uh, like conceptual and the other is practical. So conceptually, like one of the coolest things about biology is you get into it and you start looking on what's happening in the cell and everything is very black and white. Like there's, it's either there or it's not, you know, and these pieces start to click into place and it's all so complex and there's no thinking in the cell, you know, nothing is is being decided in the cell. It's all physics at the end of the day. Yeah, how, like how it's all physics. How are things physics. encoded in our cell? Why is it that someone is an athlete and his child becomes an athlete? Like, how? Oh, that's genetics. But if we're talking like in a in a single cell, like say a cell wanted to change shape, you know, like how cells go from stem cells to a differentiated muscle cell. See, um, that kind of stuff just happens when there's like a specific concentration of hormones. And the hormones will touch this, and this will send a signal to this guy, and this guy will move over here. And it's all just statistical happening. Like, none of these are thinking. They're just, you know, little molecular compounds. But watching it happen and watching the the complex shape that it takes, and you're like, oh, my God, this is, like, perfect. This is a a nearly perfect system. You know, there's always going to be things that are bad, like there's tons of genetic disorders. But just when you look at that from, like, taking a step back and you realize how beautifully complex this mathematical machine is, it's nuts. 
Right. But there's also right. there's also some really really cool uh, work being done right now, linking uh, some of the brain stuff to our stomach, and this is our my favorite thing right now. Um, yeah. So like 80% of the serotonin that's in your brain actually comes from your gut. So the bacteria in there are producing it in response to what you're eating, and then they'll send these hormones right up your vagus nerve into your brain, and so. Our diets and the composition of how we treat ourselves is so linked to our well-being and just our general state of life. What does the serotonin do? What's that linked to? What emotions or functions is that linked to? Shoot, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about brain chemistry, but I know it's pretty important in regulating a lot of mood stability, um, kind of battling depression. And there's a very uh, like when people get really hungover, I know that there is a dump of serotonin because usually when you do drugs, you like speed up the serotonin release and then your body, your well is just empty. And so that's when that really hard downward spiral comes. And so regulating that is important. And the crazy thing is that our little bacterial overlords in our stomach are deciding whether or not we're going to feel good by releasing it to travel up to our brain. Yeah, that, in fact, that's where I was getting to. I was, I was, can we, I guess we can, right? Like, can we affect our mood and physiological state by what we eat we can right like in crazy ways or you know stuff like that that's interesting hmm. okay. yeah one of the weirdest ways they're doing it is actually uh it's called a fecal transplant so there are like known compositions there's like good bacteria and bad bacteria in big general categories right and so if you have a lot of bad bacteria it'll really disrupt your system and what they can do is clean you out with antibiotics take somebody else's fecal matter, then you swallow it in a pill and it repopulates. Yeah, and everything grows back in the ratios it's supposed to be. Oh, oh man, oh man. That, that's that's a little complicated, except you're doing it without your knowledge. <laughs> the doctor doesn't call it that, just calls it, oh, this is just a little blue pill, just take this. <laughs> it's a supplement, yeah. It's a supplement or something <laughs> like that. That's, that's pretty interesting. How do you, I mean, being in this field, being a PhD, like what, what are your thoughts on, so I have a couple of questions about the intersectionality of between science and capitalism. We live in America, right? We have big pharma. We have on one side, there are a lot of like, I guess you can call them academic purists that believe, hey, you know, science should be free, like the Nikola Teslas of the world, you know, should be used to help humanity, while other people are like, fuck that, patent that shit, release that drug, release it in faces, and let's make a billion dollars out of it. Like you, like you're, you're a bit in the middle, like you started off with this business degree, you've known poverty, you know, as a kid, now you're, you're equipping yourself with this, uh, you know, um, degree, what, like, where do you think, like, where, what part of the fence are you? Like, did you feel like capitalism, that, that people should be purely compensated and there's nothing wrong with, like, exploiting science, like, for capitalism, or you think that just purely, like, a human humanity kind of, like, issue or, or somewhere in the middle? It's really hard, and there's a lot of ethics to it. I mean, at, at, its, at its core level, um, capitalism is driven by demand, right? And so for a lot of the population, that's driven by how many people have a certain disease and how severe it is to the point that they're willing to pay for it. So if a lot of people have it and they really, really need it, you're going to make a lot of money. And that's why you have to kind of incentivize people in a different way. So the government actually has like rare disease grants because nobody is incentivized to study a rare disease because even if it's super expensive, you're just not going to make enough money to to recoup everything that it takes to get a disease or a, a treatment on market. Well, so what's an example actually, of a rare disease? 
Um, there's a couple different, well, what is it? There's a blood cancer that I got to work with some people, uh, a company called Marker Therapeutics actually recently just got one of these grants for studying a blood cancer. And I think it only affects like 0.1% of an, of a, of an older population. So a very small number of people later in life, but, um, it, those people's lives are still valuable. So there are certain funded allocations from the government specifically to study grants like this. So it kind of has to be separate from the capitalistic side, you know, but also like uh, there are people who love science, there are purists, but I mean, people also want to make money. So innovation is also pushed by incentive. You know, you're going to work harder to make a brand new thing and maybe take more risks. There's a bigger reward. So it's it's really hard. And this is my favorite thing to talk about because uh, I actually was the executive director of this science business nonprofit mashup called Inventure, a phenomenal. Science um, business nonprofit? Man, I think that's a new classification for the IRS. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there were not many of them. Right. Oh, man, like, it, that makes sense, I guess. Like, even if I relate it to podcasting, right, for innovation to happen, like, they, there has to be monetization to a certain degree. Some people believe, like, hey, podcasting should be free. You start off as a free medium, that blah, blah, blah. But if the money comes in, it, it permits people, you know, to be creative and to, you know, deliver content in different ways. But there is a level where it becomes like, you know, oh, you're starting to abuse the art form or whatever. Maybe, maybe that's the same thing in science. Just like human beings would definitely find a way to be humans and you know just take things uh overboard in a way but 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 it's pretty interesting like you seem very deliberate about merging um both worlds like the the science of business and the business of science if i can use that word you know kind of thing like you have a podcast called incorporating science which is an excellent name by the way it's Thank like you. i appreciate that <laughs> talking to to science entrepreneurs about what they're working on and how they're applying it and you know how they're making money you know these are like not your typical cool people that are usually on podcasts are like talking really about some of the sciences stuff like what what led you to want to like document like to talk to your peers and like to document some of the ideas and their journey and what you hope to achieve like with the podcast incorporating science so i really really wanted to get an idea of how you take a concept like just a radical biological concept and you make it practical because i mean it's going to come down to the number of reactors that you have or the number of people running the equipment and it gets very technical and that's like a whole different nuts and bolts world than just this idealistic scientific concept and what i've really really found to be a strong pattern is that there's one team of founders that are usually scientists and they build the concept but it's much more of a labor of love for them than a practical thing. But then later off, they have to hand it to an executive team that's much more experienced, that's going to take it to that next level, and is more uh, knowledgeable about some of the brass tacks, you know, really the, the regulations surrounding it or getting VC capital. Um, and those two groups have very, very different fundamental drivers. A lot of these scientists that I've talked to have a lot of uh, very romantic idealisms and wanting to help people. And I love that. I love that, you know, people grow and they establish uh, B corporations where they, you know, explicitly have to devote some of their, their revenue towards positive changing uh, programs. And, you know, it's, it's hard because in the real world, you can't always do those things and meet your bottom line. You know, so you, you'll have to take on money because you can't scale without money. But in order to take on money, you have to get it from a VC. And a VC is only going to do it if they're going to make a certain amount of money. And they're only going to make a certain amount of money if you make certain less dreamy choices. Right, right. It's that yin and yang. It's always like, I don't know, like the way God created the world is just 
like what's important to humanity, like the sciences, technology, it's not as popular and widespread as like sports, for instance. Like you see LeBron getting thirty million dollars like a season or whatnot, and you know some scientists are just tinkering away on credit cards, trying to hone in on a concept or something like. And you try to like like maybe in a weird way, maybe it was built designed that way so that we have to work with each other. Like maybe the Laker organization has to fund some you know uh, someone who's you know into like physical therapy or something to develop something that can help the athletes but at the same time enrich them and their generation like it's it's just funny the way the way things are and maybe there are some answers in the body like whenever i think about it i was like maybe the answer to humanity can be found in nature and the body like when you see how animals interact maybe when you see how cells interact even maybe that's some kind of inspiration that oh maybe humans can interact better if they do it this way which is a natural way of interacting like in the body but this is just me dumb talk <laughs> no i think you're totally place. right i think that the biggest barrier towards making our scientists heroes is you know the ability to not really comprehend what they're doing and you see a lot even at the phd level like i don't really understand the lab is doing down the hall you know because once you get more niche it's, it's so hard to understand unless you're in that field whereas like something like basketball like a lot of people can understand it and when you understand it you can appreciate it and so like everybody can understand at least at a core concept, like with the CRISPR stuff, they're changing DNA. And so if that's all you can get, take from it, you can still see how amazing it is. And so you can still see, okay, creator of CRISPR as a hero, you know? And then you see this mashup where um, you, all you're really trying to do is get more exposure to comprehensions, like with LeBron's school, especially. You know, he's using his powers in order to every single student that went through that school now has a full ride to any of the public colleges in Ohio, you know? So they're going to be able to comprehend a lot more things in whatever field they choose to study. And they can appreciate more and they can start to, to build out what their personal heroes look like, you know? So I think it's really really just a matter of science communication being a lot better than it is right now. Facts, facts. And, and speaking about CRISPR, and, you know, for those people listening, CRISPR is this, I think she's like an Australian lady, or where is she from, or the UK or somewhere? Like, she figured out how to modify some genes. I think there's a whole talk about designer babies where you can, <laughs> that, maybe that was to sensationalize the whole thing by the media, but where you can maybe choose your, your baby's gender and whether he or she will be tall or have blue eyes or her, his or her intelligent level remove some uh, um, disease that might be, you know, in your family or something like, and there's this talk, There, there's always been this talk for centuries about how intrusive should science be? Like, I know science always seeks to answer questions, but when you talk about ethics, like it, Royal Academy of Science in England, like 200 years ago, those guys were wow. They could just pick someone off the street and cut his hair open and start investigating like what's going on in the brain <laughs> and all that stuff. Obviously, that doesn't happen now as much as it used to, but there's still some ethical issues. Like some people believe that there are some things that shouldn't just be poked at. There's some things that, you know, uh, like organ donation and things like that. Hey, you know, leave it be. It's not our prerogative, mm -hmm. things like that. Like, uh, do you still experience some of those conversations around ethics? And how, how far do you think the industry is, is uh, you know, coming uh, as far as ethically conducting some of these experiments and things like that? 
It's really, really interesting. So there's a big mishmash of opinions in science. Just uh, just this last weekend, there was a major protest outside one of the hospitals in the medical center that I work at, and they were protesting that they couldn't retain their jobs in hospitals if they didn't keep their vaccine. And I'm not going to get into all that. It's very, very political. Um, but I fall on one side that um, is more research-oriented, and uh, that just goes to show how much disparity there is, even when you're inside the loop. And actually, at Rice University here in Houston, there was a man who was doing work on fetuses. So what he actually did was he went in and he removed the receptor that allows the HIV virus to enter a cell. So a virus has to recognize something on the end of the cell in order to get in. Otherwise, it can't get in. And what he did is he kind of like deleted that from the genome. And so he, and yeah, he essentially made these babies completely resistant to the HIV virus. But that is completely unethical. You cannot tinker with a with a child like that because we don't know any of the implications. I mean, even though it was well intentioned work, I mean, you just you can't do that. And he ended up taking off in the middle of the night. He was collaborating with some people in China, and he ended up just taking all of his data and just running. And we see a lot of these kind of things Wait, where people maybe off in the push. Of the night. Was he going to be arrested or something? Or Yeah, he was in some serious trouble, like some government level trouble. <laughs> so he just kind of took off. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a huge disparity, even in like people who are very involved with the hands-on stuff about what isn't is allowed. And actually, Jennifer Dudna's company, just like four days ago, actually released the data that showed that they're using CRISPR in humans, in live humans. There's a, a, a liver disorder where you essentially make this misfolded protein, and it's kind of like a, a plaque that you would see in other kind of neurodegenerative stuff. But what they're able to do is inject you with the mRNA, the similar stuff that they're using for the vaccine. They'll inject you, and then the the proteins will remove that section of genome and essentially cure you after you've already had the disease or they'll at least stop the progression. And this is brand new stuff, never been done before. And a lot of people are falling towards one side or the other on what we should continue to do. Right, right, right. Maybe we, we continue. Like I live in Colorado and Moderna is here. So uh, <laughs> I guess maybe with more and more incentives, maybe they'll get to the bottom of it faster. Because people say, hey, dangle a carrot, you, you find answers or whatever. But that that's besides the point. Um, what's what's in it for you, like, in the future? Like, what do you hope to do? Um, is there a particular, obviously, there's a particular field you want to be involved in. But, like, what do you see as kind of your contribution to the scientific community or to humanity in general? Like, what do you want to be your legacy, like, say, in 30 years or something? Yeah, so I'm a super big softie. I uh, I started a company called Ben Heron Labs in my living room last year. And we have a couple different companies that are our clients, but I really, really pushed for making alternative meats our primary clients. And these are people who are basically taking a biopsy of a cow. And then so they're just getting the cells that really turn into steak. And they take them and they just put them in a big vat of nutritious liquid they let them double and then you essentially get a steak that is real cow but you didn't have to kill anything you didn't have to take up a bunch of land and water Wait, we and can double cows I mean, yeah, if you, you take a little bit, it's kind of like uh, when you do, you cut off a little bit of a tree, like a branch of a tree, right. and you stick it in the ground, and you get another tree. So we can make like one cow into like six cows or something. I can do a lot well, of We can hunger. make it into a bunch of steaks. Oh, my, it's going to do amazing things. Uh, they're doing it now with chickens, with uh, shrimp, with lobster. They're trying like things like buffalo. Basically, you can do it with absolutely anything because a cell is just going to double anything, it. Wait, does that mean if I clone my wife, that's not cheating? Like, what if I... 
Yeah, that, that counts. That counts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But wow, that's interesting. Wait, did you guys come up with that? Or you're kind of like oh, piggybacking no. off uh, an existing uh, technology or something? No, there's there's so many wonderful people in that space that are doing it. And so all my company does is we use big bioinformatics to help the cells grow better. So one of the limiting things and why you don't quite see it on shelves yet is because a lot of these cells are very expensive to grow. So you might've seen in the news that there was like a $500,000 hamburger. And that was one of these things is because like all the machinery and all the technology at this very, very early stage, it's still really expensive to get these things. And so what we do is help it become more economically feasible so that the business part of it can survive, so that the scaling survives. And then it brings the ethics along with it. You know, So really what I wanted to do is to use our company to do good things that I care about. I'm a big old softie for animals. I'm a big old softie for the environment. And if I could you know, use the knowledge that I have to make these things better, by all means, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Nice, nice. What was, uh, what was the inspiration behind the name Van Heron? Oh, so that's my co-founder. So she's wonderful. She, it's her, the company effectively is her baby. So she was actually from Australia and she finished her PhD and came over to participate in that nonprofit that I was the executive director of. And so in that nonprofit, we had an accelerator program where we take people with business concepts and we let them go through all these stages that make them investor ready. And so she came, she introduced her idea and, um, not a lot of people saw the value in it because here in Houston, we're really med tech, you know, a lot of devices and she was pure genetics. And so I joined her team like immediately and we've been together ever since then. And uh, so it has fundamentally been her baby, but she actually knew somebody who passed away and they had a lot of lab equipment. So this lab equipment's from like the seventies and eighties. And so that's what let us start the company in my living room was because we had all this super old lab equipment that she had to literally take apart and like rewire. And oh man, if, if you're but, a lab show uh, shows up, he'll call the police and think you guys are like breaking bad or something. <laughs> could, could, Seriously. Could met. Now all this stuff is so fascinating to me and it always reminds me, I always like to like brush, like read up on sciencey stuff whenever I can, you know, uh, read up on ancient history like Roman Empire and all this stuff. Like think about all these big things because it just reminds me like, hey man, like you're always complaining about what you're doing like your stuff ain't shit like you're just in the trucking industry like and shot not to say the people in the trucking industry are not worthy like there are a lot of like intelligent smart people who are making the economy run uh, from the trucking industry but it just goes to show that man like it could have been a lot there people are trying to solve problems that might be considered a lot harder so just you know put your nose to the ground and try to figure it out in your own space but man shout out to people like you that are making things work man like without people man, that's like, that imposter syndrome it is it's funny you say that. I was just, uh, uh, I don't know if you know Arlen Hamilton. She's from Texas as well, Houston, Texas, but she lives in Los Angeles now. She's a venture capitalist, and she was just talking about imposter syndrome this afternoon. And I mean, you know, I'm an immigrant at the end of the day. Like, I have a lot of, you know, uh, fuck you, pay me kind of <laughs> attitude, but sometimes the imposter syndrome does come out that this is just me uh, being candid. I am working on it, but I guess with more and more people like yourself, like myself, when we get to see people like ourselves up there, then we feel more comfortable in being in that space, whether that's in science, fintech, finance, whatever it is. So, you know, fingers crossed to that. Are you like, has, has any young kid come up to you or like a college student who's like interested in the scientific field who might be, you know, Hispanic or, you know, a minority and you're, you're mentoring kind of thing? Kind of. So I did uh, some life coaching for a little while, just 
kind of uh, on the side with with some people like that. And um, it, they're they're almost hey, that almost has to start internally. Like it has to start from a point where you're actively seeking help because you know if you just walk up to somebody and try to inspire them by anywhere or even just ask them what they're doing and then showing them how they could do it better from your perspective, like it's never going to work. So you kind of just have to wait in the sidelines and have somebody come to you. But uh, the ones that do are like right there, like they realize that there are actions that need to be taken, and just uh, that's the point when they're ready to seize the day. Facts. Facts, facts. Man, this has been an interesting conversation. Before we close out, uh, let's talk about your book, man. Man, like going through a PhD, starting a business, being an executive director in a nonprofit, writing a book. Dude, where's the S on your chest, man? I just want to know. <laughs> you wrote a book, man, like seeing inside. Like, what's that whole book about? Yeah, so uh, honestly, I was really emotionally stunted when I was in high school. And, you know, same thing, like, I was just trying to survive for so long. I never had the skills developed to be uh, the person that I wanted to be on so many levels, uh, both romantic relationships, friendship relationships, just being aware of my own emotions. And so I kind of wrote this book as a love letter to myself, where if I could reach back in time and just give myself the introduction, just the right words to start thinking about these things, I think I would have saved myself so much heartache. I would have gotten myself in so much less trouble and just had an overall better life. And so when I wrote this, I was really just hoping that if there's anybody else who just, you know, needed to just get a couple sentences of introduction and and kind of start putting the pieces together of what's going on internally, and maybe they'll see any sort of benefit from it. That's really why I wrote it. I think you're doing okay, Alec. I don't think you need to go back in time. Like, like <laughs> some of all of our experiences, good or bad, so where you are today, maybe in, 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 some, in some way, even though some of the earlier days weren't as, as rosy, like, it contributed in shaping you. So I would say you turned out okay in my book, so. <laughs> Thank you, man. And I, I honest to God, would not take any of those experiences back because I think that a lot of the times go those those rougher things give you a sense of depth and appreciation and just just a more flavorful feeling for life that you know I'm kind of happy I have them to be honest. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can only connect the dots looking back. So shout out to you, man. I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Before we close out, like, do you want to like uh, say any last uh, words? Do you want to like drop your social media for people to reach out to you, stuff like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm always open to chat with anybody. I mean, I, I know that it seems like they do a lot, but I have a lot of free time also. <laughs> so if you ever, you know, just want to chat about anything, feel free to reach out. Uh, my or my email is santiago.alec at gmail. And don't judge me on my Instagram. It's kind of goofy, but it's uh, Sancho Libre underscore. So thank you very much for, for having me on, man. This has been a lot of fun. Most definitely, most definitely. I will definitely keep it, keep tabs uh, once you're doing what do PhD students do? It's a graduation, right? Is, is it a graduate? Is that what yeah. you call it? That's it? Yeah. Eventually I'll defend. And then like in May after that, I'll walk the stage. Walk stuff. the stage. All right. All right. Let us know about it. Like there's a huge Nigerian community in Houston. Maybe we'll storm the place with some jollof rice and all that good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you for being on the podcast again. And for our listeners, as always, it's Culture Class Podcast. Follow us everywhere. It's Culture Class Podcast on all social media. Check out our website, cultureclasspodcast.com. Click on the link on our social media to see how you can support the podcast. Until next week, be well. Thank you.